More than 90 days of war on Gaza. Mosques and churches have been destroyed. More than 200 out of Gaza's 325 heritage sites, many of them centuries old, gone. Israel's weapons have killed, injured, and maimed. Many of the wounded are being left to bleed, while others are getting arrested after being stripped and blindfolded. For Israel, the shocking and unprecedented attacks of October 7th stung, and the response has been constant, with no sign of slowing down. Here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on where his country currently stands. We are fighting until victory. We will not stop the war until we achieve all its goals, destroying Hamas and releasing all our hostages. And the effects of the Israeli attacks have been catastrophic, even by the UN's own description. All of northern Gaza smells like death, the Palestinian Red Crescent has told us. A new term is being coined in Gaza, one you may have heard by now. Injured child, no surviving family. Nowhere is safe. Gazans have been saying this for weeks. Nowhere is safe. At a death toll of 22,300 people and counting, this has been the deadliest time for Palestinians since the 1948 Nakba. And it doesn't just affect the people on that side of the border either. The ones abroad can't go in. The ones inside can't get out. One person has told me Gaza has become uninhabitable. And not just for the time being, for future generations as well. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm Nada Al-Tahir. In this episode, we're looking at the future of Israel's war on Gaza. To help examine this subject, we speak to Tahani Mustafa, Senior Analyst on Palestine for the International Crisis Group, and Hussein Ibish, Senior Resident Scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Even according to U.S. President Joe Biden, Israel has been indiscriminately killing people in Gaza, something that is very clearly against international humanitarian law. Yet, Israel has carried out precision strikes in Lebanon on January 2nd, killing Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri and several of his compatriots. Let's go to Tahani for more on the significance of this attack. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how relevant he was to Hamas's movement, I mean, he was one of uh, Hamas's top leaders. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Qassam Brigades, uh, Hamas's armed military wing. He was also very pivotal to uh, the reconciliation efforts between Fatah and Hamas. And he was also one of the uh, main proponents of armed resistance. He was supporting the armed resistance, especially the phenomenon we've seen since May 2021. So he was, he's been very important in terms of providing um, support for, for some of those cross-alliance-based groups. But in terms of the significance of his killing, I mean, it's difficult to tell in the sense that um, we saw uh, Hezbollah issue statements regarding any attempted assassinations on Lebanese soil. But we've also seen at the same time that this war clearly has no red lines. You know, there's been quite a few uh, what we would consider to be significant transgressions that in any normal context would have spurred some kind of uh, regional or wider global Um, impact, at least militarily, and we haven't seen that. Whether this will actually be the tipping point is, again, very difficult to determine because the Palestinian factions have not called for any kind of broader retaliation outside of Palestine. You know, we know that Hamas has a very sophisticated structure whereby it pre-plans everything very meticulously. So if there is any incidence of them losing a key figure, then they immediately have someone to replace them. So there's no uh, discontinuity within the organization. 
we also know that Hamas haven't called for retaliation beyond the uh, Palestinian territories and whether Hezbollah would be willing to let this be the the kind of issue that really um, brings it directly into conflict is also very doubtful, given the fact that obviously we know that Lebanon's infrastructure is crumbling. We know that its economy is non-existent. Um, and also from previous experience, given the devastation that Israel has inflicted on civilian infrastructure in Lebanon, you know, any any kind of war could seriously be catastrophic for, for, for Lebanon. And I think that's what's kept Hezbollah out of it. And I think that's what will continue to keep Hezbollah out of it. Since I spoke with Tahani on this topic on Wednesday, January 3rd, Hassan Nasrallah made some scathing comments towards Israel, saying that Hezbollah, quote, cannot be silent after Aruri's killing. He is set to speak again on Friday, January 5th. So, right now, things don't seem to be getting any calmer. Some might argue that this war began on October 7th, after Hamas launched an attack on Israel during which they killed 1,200 people. But in return, Israel has killed more than 22,300 people in Gaza and wounded well over 50,000 others. And thousands more are still under rubble because the damage is just too severe to keep up with and the roads are either blocked or damaged making it impossible for ambulances and emergency services to reach the people down there to rescue them or pull them out for a proper burial. Even cemeteries have been desecrated. So where is all this going? Here's Tahani. Um, I mean, this is a war of attrition, right? So for Hamas, uh, you know, Hamas have made it very clear that they are prepared to see this war through as as long as they can, as long as Israel wants to to continue to... um, you know, launch its uh, aggression against Gaza. And Israel has made it very clear that it has no intention to scale back, at least not in the short term. Um, you know, there were talks of, I think, last month um, extending this war for its aggressive military campaign for the next two months and then trying to scale back after that. And now we're hearing that Israel is expecting this to last for another six months um, before it thinks about scaling back. So I think ultimately the ball is, is really in Israel's court. It, it ultimately depends on when Israel wants to seriously start thinking about scaling back um, operations and to seriously start thinking about negotiations. And, uh, you know, you can say what you will about Hamas, but its requirement for a ceasefire is not before any other um, elements can be negotiated is not entirely unreasonable, given what we saw during the humanitarian pause um, and a lot of the transgressions we saw, we saw from the Israeli side, as well as what previous experience has taught us since 2008. Did anyone really think that Hamas would have lasted this long in the first place? Wouldn't people have thought that Hamas would have run out of weapons by now? Even by the U.S.'s own assessment, Hamas still has, quote, significant force posture in Gaza. I mean, I think that's a really good point you raise. Um, I think a lot of people did underestimate Hamas's capability, and I think they still are underestimating Hamas's capabilities. Um, And I don't mean that in the sense of the stockpiles of weapons, because obviously there have been limitations as to what they can get in, right? Since Israel controls all land, air and sea space, right? And everything that goes pretty much in and out is very heavily surveyed. Yes, they have a very sophisticated tunnel infrastructure, but even then, I mean, there there will inevitably be impediments as to the kinds of weaponry that they can smuggle in. But I think what's been interesting is, and this isn't just limited to Hamas, but I think the Palestinian resistance more broadly has come a very long way from what it used to be. And I think they've learned a lot of um, critical lessons um, that they've just, you know, learned from experience in the field. I mean, you could ask the same question about some of the new armed groups that are being run by 16 to, to 28 year olds, right, who have no military experience, but yet are able to conduct incredibly uh, effective ambushes against one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world, doing, using very primitive 
um, um, you know, uh, equipment, like very basic surveillance cameras that you can literally buy off Amazon, for example, or like any little thing. And that's exactly what Hamas are utilizing in some ways. I mean, that's not to deny that they don't have, you know, obviously some weapons at their disposal, but a lot of what we're seeing for many of your listeners that do follow um, you know, Hamas's Telegram, or if you're following Al Jazeera or, or a lot of Arabic media, they'll show you videos where what they're using is so primitive, um, but it is able to take down some of the most sophisticated weaponry and some of the most sophisticated armored vehicles um, in the world. You know, they're, they're using very, um, you know, very basic count, uh, sorry, insurgency tactics in terms of being able to launch uh, ambushes, in terms of be a- being able to make the most of their tunnel infrastructure. Um, being able to, you know, uh, jam Israel's air defense system, um, being able to shoot down Israeli drones and then reprogram them with their own engineers and then send them back up. But, and then the Israelis, you know, they can then survey the Israeli uh, coordinates through that because Israel doesn't suspect them to be anything but their own drones, you know. That, so it's just being a bit savvy in terms of what you have at your disposal. And I think that's where the, the Palestinian resistance has really come a very long way since then. They know their limitations and they know how to make the most of it. So Hamas is significantly weaker when it comes to equipment, that much we know. But what keeps it going? What motivates the group's fighters to carry out such brazen attacks at zero distance, mind you, against some of the strongest and most fortified tanks? In November, we spoke to Hussein Ibish on what makes Ghazans unique. The refugees in Gaza are unique among Palestinian refugees in being right next to their former villages. Right next to it. They just run across and then they're, they're where they used to come from. The, the people in, say, in Balata are really far. The, the refugees in Jordan are really far. The, the, the refugees in Lebanon are really far from where they came. That's not true in Gaza. They no. can see their former land. Right. And when they attacked those villages in southern Israel, it didn't matter to them that this is the, this is the hotbed of Israeli peace camp. A lot of the people they killed and captured were among the most dovish Israelis. In, in Israel. Didn't matter. The point is, these are the colonial settlers living in our villages, not our country writ large, our villages, specifically mine, you know, and the rage that, that, that fuels that can't be underestimated, right? This is not, uh, it is in part an attack on, you know, from Hamas's point of view, it's, it's the leadership. They're thinking about Israel writ large, the, the Palestinian struggle, etc. The, the guy with the gun, who is so cruel, why is he like that? Well, one of the reasons is that he is finally going back to his area and getting at the people who threw them out. And there is a fury behind that. There is a bloodlust, but it's not decontextualized. Right. It emerges from a very specific history. And the history is significant. It doesn't excuse anything. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it less horrible. But it does make it more understandable. Tahani explains this point a little bit further. I think also the power dynamic here is this, right? Uh, Hamas, I mean, their motto is to die in the name of the cause. And I remember at the outset of the the conflict, including some very senior Hamas um, um, figures were saying, you know, that has always been our motto. Now let's see if we live up to it. 
So there is this kind of undying devotion to the cause where, you know, you are willing to sacrifice everything you have, including your own life for it, which is substantially different to the Israeli side, where any losses incurred by Israel is completely demoralizing. It can completely throw their psyche off. And we've seen that numerous times in the West Bank, for example. So to have not expected something similar in Gaza was completely naive. Also, there's this really interesting kind of perception that the Israeli, I think, security establishment has managed to... I think oversell itself in many ways in terms of its capabilities and know-how. When anyone, anyone on any level who have ever encountered the Israeli security establishment, whether you're talking about the police, intelligence, military, know that that is actually not the case. That they are not as sophisticated as they like to present themselves. And even in ground-to-ground combat, I mean, ground-to-ground combat is their weakest, I mean, it's their, their absolute Achilles heel. And I think anyone prior to the 7th of October could have seen that in, in, in the West Bank quite, you know, very easily. Janine is a great example of that. Never mind July, where you had the ambush and they quite literally had to send in their air force to rescue. Imagine you're thinking of Janine and a tiny refugee camp where they're fighting 16 to 25 year olds. I think the oldest person that was killed, the oldest militant was like 22. Right. And they're using, again, very primitive weapons, looted weapons. Right. Um, And they had to quite literally send in their air force to rescue their ground troops. So anyone who who would think that they were then able to succeed ground-to-ground combat against an organized resistance movement like Hamas that has been trained by groups like Hezbollah, for instance, who, again, are very sophisticated in the art of insurgency, it's incredibly naive to have assumed that they wouldn't incur the losses they have. And if anyone is buying the numbers and figures that Israel is, is providing, again, just goes to show the sophistication of thought, because... First of all, Israel has a very strong interest in terms of exaggerating those numbers, considering the amount of economic cost that they are not paying for, that its Western supporters are paying for, that they are now incurring. Like them or hate them, as polls say Gazans do, Hamas is holding out so far. And with Hezbollah ramping up its rhetoric and Yemen's Houthis carrying out attack after attack in the Red Sea on ships that they claim are headed to Israel, it's anyone's guess what will actually happen in the region. It's always important to remember The people most affected in the Gaza war are the people in Gaza. They are significantly civilians, and right now, their focus is just on making it through another day, getting food, water, and staying warm. Let's leave you with a few parting words from a child in Gaza on what her dreams are for the new year. I wish not to die in 2024. There is no bathroom, no food, and no water. Our childhood is gone. There is nothing. And here's Tahani with some of her own closing thoughts. Whether it was worth paying the price that Gazans are paying today, I think is something that we're going to probably end up seeing. But I think this is really the first time. It's uh, it's very sad to say this, but I think this is truly the first time where um, any of us who have worked on this really do feel like the prospects for any kind of positive horizon, I mean, if you're talking about just a tiny silver lining, is unfathomable. Like, I cannot, I cannot see this ending in any positive way for Palestinians. Not just because in retrospect, we've never seen that. Like in any inflection point, it's always ended up producing a worse outcome for them. They've always ended up having to cede to some process of capitulation. But I think this is really the first time where what's so unsettling with what's happening is that not only are they going through what they're going through, but even if you were to have a ceasefire tomorrow, you know the worst is still to come. This is Beyond the Headlines. This episode was produced by Phil Green and Arthur Edison and I've been your host, Nadal Tahir. Please subscribe as we continue to cover the war in Gaza.